Welcome to the Josh Blair Ministry Podcast, a podcast all about bringing inspiration and encouragement to your daily walk with Jesus. We pray the message you hear impacts you as you follow Christ. Well, this morning we have a special guest with us. Uh, he led us into worship this morning. His name is Pastor Ben Brown. He and I have been friends for quite some time when he was a worship pastor here in beautiful Madeira, and that's where we were able to connect. And now he's ministering up at the house in Modesto, and he's the director of SEU NorCal. He's a, he's a, a, a man with great intensity for the, for the heart of God. And so uh, when we're going through our, ha- our habits uh, through this series, Healthy Habits, And I wanted to speak on worship. I thought, who better than the man who helped me learn really how to worship the Lord? And that was through uh, the guidance and direction of Pastor Ben. So would you welcome him as he comes and brings this word to us this morning? Thank you. Well, good morning. Great to be in church today. Amen. Great to be in Madeira. Uh, It's been a little while. Uh, As Pastor Josh said, I was uh, ministered here about, I don't know, 12 years ago, I think. Time flies, boy. And um, I was three years here in Madeira. have a lot of great memories here, uh, a lot of great ministry moments here. Thank you, Pastor Josh, for having me today. And uh, I just want to say, he honored me, but I want to honor him. Uh, this is a man of integrity. This is a man who loves God, but he loves you as well. Are you grateful for your pastor this morning? We love you. Um, I want to jump in here, and uh, let me just say a few things at the beginning. And uh, I do have a word. I feel it's from the Lord. Um, we may go a little past 11.15 today. Hope that's okay, um, because I feel like God wants to do something. He's already done something. And uh, wasn't his presence powerful? And that's not because of me. I want you to know that. That's because of him. That's because he wanted to find a place this morning where he could settle down into its midst and move. And we opened the door wide to him and we said, Lord, you come and have your way. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. And so I want to talk to you about that this morning. Um, Just real quick, to give you a little bit of background, I came out here to Madeira right out of college. This was the first place of ministry uh, I was in for three years. Now I'm at the house, Uh, like Pastor Josh said, I started there in full-time worship ministry. I was in full-time worship ministry about 15 years, and um, most recently, though, the past six years, I've been directing a university, and this is what God has done in my heart. Um, I've always had a desire to see people worshiping. I've always had a desire to see them really get it to get their role, to get their responsibility in this thing we call corporate worship. But as I began to get involved in education, and I began to work with interns and students, I really developed a desire to teach the church, to teach them the truth about praise and worship, about corporate worship. Because if they can get a hold of the truth, they're going to be changed. They're going to be transformed. They're not going to leave a situation the same. Because God is going to come in and do what only God can do. Similar to what just happened this morning. When we open our hearts, when we open the door for him, he can come in and move. 
So in the midst of this, um, let me talk about people of his presence just a little bit. This is my book. There is a table in the back corner, and uh, I would love to get this in your hands this morning. Uh, you can have it just for $10. On Amazon, it's about $13.50, so this is a little bit better deal. Um, and I just want to bless you. I'm going to be talking about some things in the book this morning, but I can't preach the whole book, okay? So if you really want to get the meat of what I'm going to talk about and really want to dig a little deeper, I'd encourage you to pick up one of these books. Um, and also, uh, I will say this, that being at SEU NorCal, um, it's great to have Josh in the school and um, any of you who is interested in furthering your training, I'd love to talk to you about that too, because we're wanting to see a generation raised up who's full of power and anointing, not just education. Education's important, but we want to do it in the context of the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we want to see people raised up and launched out, both for church ministry and ministry in the marketplace, wherever God would position them. And so please talk to me at the end if you're interested in either of those things. I'll try to make my way back to the back table, um, and I have some people that can be there as well. Um, I think to start this off, I want to read a quote from the book. There's something in the back. It's the afterword that I kind of put together, and it sums up where I feel like we're at as a church when it comes to corporate worship. Let me read it to you. It says, the deterioration of spiritual fervor in God's house is evident. As I've traveled the United States, I've continually witnessed performance over presence. Music is better than ever. Sound systems are state-of-the-art. Stage lights rival some of the best concert venues. Yet something is missing. Where are the worshipers? I've left many church services with holy discontentment. The stage was entirely set for a glorious encounter with God, but the experience fell short of that life-changing interaction with Him. Church, this book was written, and this is about 20 years in the making, by the way. Um, this took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. This was a lot of work to get this done, but I felt a mandate from the Lord to get this published because the church needs to know the truth about worship. If the church wants to see breakthrough corporately, then we need to come together in worship. And I am hoping that through this book and through this ministry, a movement is going to start among God's people to bring the heart of worship back to the house of God. How many want to see the heart of worship in the house of God? It's time. It's time that we not settle for mere performance. It's time that we not just have glorious worship happening on a stage and an audience of people who are unengaged. It's time that people connect in to the experience because that's where we're going to see God move. That's where we're going to see God do amazing things. So as I began to think about an illustration that would kind of sum up my heart along these lines, um, I feel like God dropped a, a picture in my heart, and it's the difference between black and white and color television. Jill, do you have the family picture up there? I forgot to talk about that. There's my beautiful family. She tells me I forget to talk about this, so I better do it. 
Um, this is my wife, Jill. These are my daughters, Ashlyn. She's nine. Lydia, she's six. And um, I love these guys with all my heart. And they're all here today. I think the girls are in kids' church. Yeah. Um, but I want to honor them as well. Thank you, Jill, for all that you do to support me and to help me with the ministry. Um, okay, what was I saying? I totally got off track. Yes, black and white. Black and white versus color. Okay, um, and I want to kind of talk specifically about black and white television versus color television. Now, if you're old enough in the room, you remember when there was no color television. You may even remember when there was no television. Okay, back in the 1940s and 1950s, something happened called television. And it was the latest craze, and there was a big TV set in most households, like in the front room or the living room or, or whatever. And it was black and white, okay? But everyone would crowd around that TV, and they would watch television together in black and white. Television sets became a staple commodity in homes all over America. But something was about to change. Something was better on the horizon. And I want you to watch this famous clip that's going to signal that shift. Let's watch this. There we go. Okay, there was supposed to be audio before that. It basically says, pay attention to the following show that's going to be broadcast in living color. Okay. This is what? This is the famous NBC Peacock. And do we have the modern day version? That's the one we all see today. But this is where it started. Um, when color TV began to come on the scene, they would show this peacock before the show began. And as it unruffled its feathers, if the feathers turned color, then it was, it was telling you that you were about to watch a show in color. Color programming. Okay, this first happened in 1953, but listen, it took a little while for people to catch on to the idea. It took a little while for networks to catch on to the idea. Many networks thought this was way too expensive. This is way too hard to try to convert our black and white television into color TV programming. But as time went on, and as they saw ratings increase with color television, networks began to catch on to the idea, and color television sets slowly began replacing black and white television sets. And then people wondered, how did we go on so long without color television? Here's my point. Just like TV shows of a previous generation, listen, were transformed from black and white into living color, so our praise and worship needs to take on a new dimension, the living color of heaven. And we will never go back to our black and white experiences. Once you have tasted and seen the living color of God's presence, you will never want to go back to black and white experiences. Let's pray, and then I'm going to read some scripture. Father, we thank you we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth, Lord, about worship. We thank you that you've called us 
You've called us for such a time as this. You've called us to rise up and take our place as worshipers in the house of God, to stand in the gap on behalf of our land, and Father, to let praise and worship flow from our hearts and our lives, that a generation could be reached, that a generation could be touched. We thank you for it, Lord. Speak through me. Let your word flow through me in this message and in this remaining time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of my message is Worship in Living Color. And I want to read a passage of scripture that gives you an idea of worship in living color. If we want to look at what pleases the Father in worship, we need to look to the scriptures. We need to look to the Bible. We need to look to the pattern that's set before us in scripture. We don't need to try to emulate the the newest fad in the church, the newest trend in the church. We don't need to try to emulate a concert. We need to look at what the Word of God says. I want to read this to you. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, beginning in verse 4, starting with chapter 1. It says, Instantly I was in the Spirit. This is the Apostle John. We know that as Jesus was crucified, uh, the, the disciples, many of them were martyred. They were persecuted. John ended up in a prison on an island, and in that prison, God gave him a glorious vision of heaven. And the whole book of Revelation is this vision. But this is the beginning part. John was in the spirit. He says, I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it, brilliant as gemstones. And the glow of an emerald circled around his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four other thrones surrounded him and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. Day after day, night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Another translation says, For your pleasure they were created. Let's jump over to chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a scroll. Let me stop there. A lot of times in the book of Revelation, a scroll symbolizes a judgment that's about to be released on a people, on a nation. But in this instance, this scroll is a purchase deed. It's a purchase deed. Someone needed to get a hold of this scroll to buy back somebody's redemption, your redemption, my redemption. Someone was about to come on the scene and take a hold of the scroll and bring salvation to the people of God. Someone say amen. That's good news. That's good news. It says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory, and he is worthy to open the scroll. He, Jesus, stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. This is Jesus, the lamb of God. And they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. Your blood has ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, accompanied by the living beings and the elders. And they all sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and they all sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb who brings salvation forever and ever. The word of God is powerful. Amen? This is a glorious scene that's unfolded in front of us. And we see that every, every creature, every creature is worshiping the lamb because the lamb alone was able to take away our sin. The lamb alone was able to bring salvation. The lamb alone was able to fix what was broken in this world. This is worship in living color. This is what we ought to be experiencing in some measure right here, right now. And I want to talk about it a little bit. Worship in living color has three characteristics. I want to give each of these to you this morning. The first is that worship in living color is unified. Notice the unity in what I just read. All of the elders bowed down. All of the beings were singing around the throne 24-7. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, is glorifying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. No one is left out. No one is over here taking a break. Everyone's engaged because they realize that he's worthy. He's always worthy of their best praise. Something I say in my book is that God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. I want you to think about that. We do not have to pull off the perfect worship service. We didn't have to pull off the perfect worship service this morning because that's already going on around the throne in heaven. You know what we need to do? We need to come into alignment with what's going on around the throne in heaven. We need to position ourselves so that we can engage in the experience, so that we can join the song, so that we can be part of what God is doing right now in heavenly places. Something that I say also in the book is it's one thing to get people to agree, but it's an entirely different thing to get them to actually move forward as one man. See, we could all kind of agree about something in this room, but to actually stand up and move out and take action. That's a whole other level of unity. But that's what worship requires. Worship requires a step. Worship requires positioning myself and moving forward in faith. Okay? I want to uh, talk about an instance in Scripture, and there's lots of instances of unity, but 
In Joshua chapter 6, a lot of you know this story. The Israelites were on the edge of the promised land. They were about to go across the Jordan River into the promised land to take the land. But there was a barrier in front of them. It was the city of Jericho. And there were big walls around Jericho. And Joshua uh, heard the word of the Lord, specific instructions that he and the people needed to follow in order to take that city and march into the promised land. The instructions were, Joshua, have the people march around the city for seven days. Now, the first six days, march around once a day. But on the seventh day, march around seven times. And at the end of that seventh time, the trumpets need to sound, and the people all need to lift a shout of praise. And I'll give you the city. And so what happened? Let's start in verse 20. It says, When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, the trumpets, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. Church, I would propose to you today that there was incredible victory in that moment because there was incredible unity. Let me say it again. There was incredible victory because there was incredible unity. Can you imagine this scene unfolding in today's church? The pastor stands up and says, we need to go out there and march around the city seven times. Who's with me? And I guarantee you there would be people that say, mm, I don't think I want to do that. That's kind of ridiculous, pastor. Uh, really? You want me to do that? I don't know. That's kind of foolish. No. I want you to look at Scripture. Look at what the people of God did. They came into alignment. They came into one accord, and they moved out in faith. It didn't matter what it looked like. It didn't matter what it looked like. They simply positioned themselves in faith, and God brought the victory. Amen? Throughout Scripture, in every revival in church history and around the throne in heavenly realms right now, powerful things are happening because there is unity. And my challenge to you, church, is that when we rise up, not as a, an army, a physical army that battles flesh and blood, because that's not what we do today, but as an army of worshipers that battles against powers and principalities of darkness and things that are standing in front of us that are preventing the kingdom from moving forward. As we begin to join the song, as we begin to come into unity with other believers, we are going to begin to see the plans of the wicked frustrated and the plans of God furthered. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want to illustrate this with something you might have never done in a church service. I hope this is okay. Um, but it's okay because it's going to illustrate a powerful point. I have a question for this congregation this morning. The question is, who has a birthday? Maybe you've had a birthday in the last couple of weeks, or you're going to have a birthday in the next couple of weeks. Who has a birthday around, right around this? What's your name? Anna. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing happy birthday to Anna. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Anna, happy birthday to you. Let's give her a hand. Yeah. 
Happy birthday. I'm going to give you a free book today. This is my birthday present to you, okay? Now, why did I do that? I want you to notice what happened. You realize that music is one of the fastest ways to get a room in unity. To sing a song that we all know, that's one of the, the most effective ways to bring a room together. I could put a statement up here on the screen and we could try to read it together and we might get a measure of unity, but some people will be ahead of it, some people will be behind it, and it's hard to lock into it. But you realize that song with tempo, rhythm, melody, all that stuff, it locks us together. Okay? God knew that. He knew that. There's no accident that we do a lot of singing in church because he knew that it would bring us into agreement if we're willing. Okay? Um, here's the idea. I could have just said, okay, as Anna walks out of the church th today, it's her birthday, so as Anna walks out, why don't you just individually in your own way say happy birthday or some encouraging words or something to honor her, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. But what happened when we all came together and we all sang together? There was power in that moment. And the power can be diffused out of a moment like that when we're all just doing different things. But when we come together in one accord, in unity, something shifts, something changes. And let me make this point too. In our culture, when it's someone's birthday, what do we do? We sing happy birthday just like we just did. And it doesn't matter if you have a great singing voice or not. You join in the song and sing because it's what we do. So the point is, how much more, listen, how much more should we join in the song of worship that's going on around the throne in heavenly places right now and give glory and honor and power to the king regardless of how I sing? God knows your gifts, friend. He knows your gifts. He knows whether you have a gift of singing. That doesn't surprise him. You could be the worst singer in the world by our standards, but it's a beautiful sound in the ear of the Father. It's a beautiful sound because you're coming into agreement with worship. Worship in living color is unified. We need to join that song of the multitude around the throne. Second point I want to make is that worship in living color is intimate. Now, this is something I don't think we're going to quite understand until we get to heaven. Okay? Um, while this takes all of us coming together in unity, there's something also very personal that happens when we gather together in worship. It's corporate, but it's personal at the same time. Okay? When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, let me illustrate this. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross in Matthew 27, 51. It says, at that moment, the curtain or the veil in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me give you a little context. The temple and before that, the tabernacle in the wilderness had an outer court area where people could just go in there and offer sacrifices of worship to God. But then there was an inner court, and there was a front room called the holy place, and there was a back room called the holy of holies, and a veil separated those two rooms. Only the priests, plural, could go into the holy place and offer sacrifices. You couldn't just meander your way into the inner court, okay? 
only the priest, singular, one person, one time of year, the high priest could go through that veil into the Holy of Holies, which is where the manifest presence of God resided. Sinful man could not approach the holiness of God or he would be struck down dead. We needed a way to make atonement, to address the sin in our own lives so that forgiveness could come. Now, in the Old Testament, that came through a high priest, okay? But look at what this is saying. When Jesus said, it is finished, and he breathed his last on the cross, he said, at that moment, the curtain or veil in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. By the way, this was not a flimsy piece of fabric. Some scholars believe this was six inches thick, this veil, six inches thick. This took an act of God to tear this thing, by the way, from the top, and that was really high up in the temple, from the top all the way down to the bottom. In that moment, it was as if God was saying to all mankind, I accept the sacrifice of my son as payment in full for your sin, and now all of you, anytime you desire, have access to my very throne room. Anytime, any of you, you have access to the place where I reside in my manifest power and glory. Here's the caveat, okay? Here's the thing. We have access, but we make a choice. We still make a choice to enter in. When you hear people leading in worship and they say things like, let's enter in, this is what they're talking about. Let's enter in. Let's move beyond an outer court place. Let's move into a place of intimacy. Let's move into a place of closeness with God. Um, I can't tell you how many times I come across literature, resources in the worship world, and they say, Jesus did everything, so we don't have to do anything. No, we have to do something. We have a responsibility. We have a great responsibility. Jesus died for everyone, but you have to choose to accept him, right? There's answers to all kinds of problems in life in Scripture, but you have to choose to read it, and you have to choose to apply it to your life, right? Living a holy life is possible through the Spirit's work, but listen, we're still faced with day-to-day -day decisions that challenge our level of holiness. We have to choose to live right before the Lord. And God has provided access to His manifest presence, but we must choose to enter in. You must choose. I must choose. And let me tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it to go into a deeper place with God, the place where he abides, because that's where when you open up your heart and you become transparent before him, he can move in and do the heart surgery that he needs to do. He can't do it unless you've opened yourself up to it. Okay? We open ourselves up to his move and his work in this deeper place of intimacy. Now, I have another illustration, and... Um, you guys are like this. I have some cards that I'm going to show you, and my daughters always want me to show you their cards, so you get to see this. Um, this is a card I got for Father's Day. 
couple years ago now, I think, um, from my youngest daughter. It says, Daddy, I'm giving you the best Father's Day gift you could possibly get. And then it says, me, and she's jumping out of the card. Time with me. And then in parentheses, it says, you didn't really want more power tools, did you? Happy Father's Day. Hugs and kisses. Okay. Uh, this is Hallmark at its best, right? This is what Hallmark does. They make cute cards. They're perfect in every way. They say what you want to say to somebody. Okay. Great card. Now, I ask my girls on occasion, or sometimes my wife will say, hey, girls, make daddy a card, a love note. And we don't say what it has to say. We don't, we don't put any stipulations on it. It's just make a card for, for your daddy. And so this is the kind of stuff I get. This is the latest one from my oldest daughter. She says, you're the apple to my pie. You're the straw to my milkshake. I love you, Daddy, and you love me too. Right? I'll, I'll show you my other daughter, her card. She'll get mad at me if I don't show you hers. So there's a rainbow on the front with a smiley face on it. And it says, I love you, Daddy. And she started to draw a B instead of a D. So she scratched that one out and put D-A-D-D-Y. And I think this is a unicorn. Young girls are fascinated with unicorns right now. That's, it's all about unicorns. I don't understand. So cards from my kids, okay? Now, what am I doing? What am I uh, giving you this, this illustration for? Because, and I think if you have kids or grandkids, you know where I'm going. If I hold these up side by side, which one wins my heart over more? The one from my kid. My kid's heart on paper, okay? This is nice, but this one strikes a chord with my heart because it, and it's got scribbles on it, it's misspelled words, it's coloring outside the lines, but none of that matters because my kid just drew me a card. When we are in times of worship, and I'm talking about intimacy and worship, there are a lot of great worship songs out there. We sing a lot of great ones. We did this morning, okay? And there's nothing wrong with those. And you should sing those songs. But I think sometimes, church, God wants to hear your song. He wants to hear the song from your heart. It's not dictated to you. Listen, it's not dictated to you. You don't have to get prompting from someone or prompting from words on a screen to sing this song. No, this song is buried deep inside of you, waiting to be released to the Father. You understand that you are his children. So God wants to hear his children write their own love songs to him. God wants to hear his children begin to release a song. How does that work? I'm going to play something over here. I hope that's okay with the mic. Back it off. How does that work? We're in a time of worship, and we're between songs. Or maybe there's just an instrumental section. It's a perfect opportunity for you just to release your heart to the Lord. Okay? So we're coming out of, I will build my life upon your love.
Jesus, I will not be shaken. Oh, there is none like you. I delight in you, Lord. I love you, Father. I love you, Father. Receive my worship. Receive my praise. And on and on and on and on. I could do that forever. I could do that for hours and hours and hours. Now, I've done that a little bit. You may not have done that a lot. And you have to kind of work on it. And that's okay. Work on it in, in your prayer closet. Work on it at home. Get some worship music on and just begin to release a song to God. There's something to that. I'm telling you, church, everywhere I've gone and ministered this teaching and talked about releasing a personal song takes the worship to a new level in that congregation. Why does it happen? It happens because we let go of just ritual we let go of just what we're accustomed to, and we become vulnerable in God's presence, and we open our hearts to him. And like I said, that's where he can move in, and he can do what only he can do. So my challenge to you is release a song. We're going to do something at the end here if we have time. Uh, and I'm going to tell you to release a song, and I don't want you to worry about your voice. And don't worry about what anyone else is doing. That's you and God. That's a moment with you and Father God. Okay? Make sense? Worship in living color. It's unified. It's also intimate. Here's my last point. Worship in living color endures. This is a critical point. Something I say in the book, praise and worship can easily become surface excitement, but it needs to be more than that. It needs to be a lifestyle that sustains us in every circumstance. I want to use the illustration of Jesus' last week on earth when he was here. In the beginning of that week, he was going into Jerusalem. It was the triumphal entry. He was heading into the city on that colt to the loud praising of people. Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were waving those palm branches, right? Other side, other end of the week, we know that there was a glorious resurrection. He rose from the dead. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he ascended to heaven in all victory and power. And we were all celebrating. But between those two instances, he had a garden experience. He had to endure the cross. He had to endure suffering. He had to endure the greatest trial man could ever endure. And in the garden, what was he doing? He was praying. He was worshiping. He was drawing close to the Father. He had cultivated a life. And yes, I know it's Jesus, but he's the pattern for us. He had cultivated a life of worship. So when the hard thing came, he was in the right place. His perspective was right. He didn't run from God. He ran to God. Your will, not mine, Father, but your will be done. We have to be willing to worship in the garden, not just at the triumphal entries or the resurrection moments in our lives. Many believers, especially in the American church, are great at this praise and worship thing in good times, but they become disillusioned and resentful when trials come. 
You realize that God is still on his throne no matter what the situation or the circumstance? You realize that we live in a sinful world and we experience the effects of that sin? Bad things happen. They happen to good people, but we need to hold on and we need to hold fast to the Lord because he alone is able to bring the victory, okay? God is on his throne. Yeah, go ahead and give him praise. God is on his throne. When 9-11 happened, the angels and saints and heavenly hosts didn't stop praising and turn around and see if God had been removed from his throne. No, they knew God was on his throne. Bad things happen in this life, but God is on his throne and he is still worthy of praise because he has bought back my redemption and your redemption. Even when things get rough, even when things get hard, the fact that he has saved you and me is enough to give him worship. Amen? Worship persists around the throne, regardless of situation or circumstance, and worship needs to persist in our lives as well. I'm going to read a final passage of Scripture that illustrates this perfectly. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's Acts 16. This is Paul and Silas in prison. Many of you know this story. Okay. Um, Paul and Silas were doing ministry, and they came upon this girl who was telling people's fortunes. She was predicting the future, and she was a slave girl, so her owners were making money off of it. She'd go up to people and tell them all about their life, and then they'd pay the, the slave owner okay, because of that, what she was doing. Paul and Silas came upon her, and Paul recognized that there was an evil spirit at work there, and he cast that spirit out of her. And then it says, the owners became enraged because they realized that their hopes of making money were gone. She wasn't going to predict any more future, so they weren't going to make any more money. And they took Paul and Silas before the authorities, and they had them stripped and beaten and thrown into prison. Starting with verse 24, it says, the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. What were Paul and Silas doing in prison? Were they complaining? Were they looking for excuses not to worship? No, they were praying and they were praising. I want to point out a few things that happened. First thing, I want you to recognize it was midnight. I was just talking about this. Your life may look dark. You may be going through a circumstance that's not pleasant. They were, and in the midst of that environment, they chose to lift their voices in praise. I want to remind you, friend, that God has not forgotten you this morning. And he has not destined you to be in a jail cell. God wants to bring victory in your life, but he's looking for you to begin to lift your voice in praise and exalt him. 